Well, Hope Church, it's good to be with you again. I'm so sorry to hear about your pastor's health and certainly been praying for him this week, but it's always a privilege to be here. I'd like to start by sharing this uh, short little uh, allegory that I heard called the road of life. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, a two-seater. And I noticed that Christ was in the back, helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we trade places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. And even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal. I was worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? And he laughed and didn't answer. And I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. I did not trust him at first to control my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to make it jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to shorten the scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he just smiles and says, pedal. Trusting God. Sometimes it seems like we're on a tandem bicycle, out of control. The psalm we're about to look at this morning teaches us much about trust. In fact, I've entitled my message, message to you this morning, Four W's of Trust. There's little creative about these W's. They're merely the questions that a journalist may ask to get his or her story or a detective may ask at a crime scene. Who, what, when, and why. So I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 62, which is a psalm about trusting God. Written by David, and he certainly had his many seasons of difficulty and trials and testings. I'd like to begin by just reading the first four verses. Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. 
They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So this first W is the why of trust. Why does David find that he needs to trust God? Well, the psalm tells us in verses 3 and 4 that he has enemies that are after him. A serious attack. They won't stop until he's been murdered. Now, can you think of a few times that David's life was in danger? Uh, Typically, we think of the early years after he had gone to serve Saul in Saul's court as as a musician. And uh, at at some point after David began uh, fighting the Philistines, he won the love of the people. And as soon as David becomes more popular to the people than Saul was, now Saul all of a sudden has become an enemy. He chucks a few spears at David and David recognizes that Saul is out to kill him. It's not only Saul, but Saul's entire army. So for close to 10 years, David's life was in danger. Later, after David ascends to the throne, we might remember the story of his adult son, Absalom, who wants to remove his father from the throne. He wants the throne. And so Absalom himself goes on this, uh, has his commitment to turn the army and Israel against David and to actually kill his own father. I think it's that occasion that that forms the the background of this psalm because we see that in verse 4, it talks about being thrust down from his high position. He most likely is talking about the throne that he has been serving as king. And so as king, I believe he is now in exile and writes this psalm during that time period of his life. This psalm is filled with images, and we're going to take some time to notice the different images. Uh, Using images and metaphors are very effective for communicators. Uh, It's something that that teachers uh, learn and pastors learn. And here, David uses a couple metaphors in verse 3. He talks about a a leaning wall. If you've uh, ever driven through the prairie states like Kansas or Nebraska, you'll notice Uh, that some of the snow fences that are built to protect the interstates from the the blizzards of snow and oftentimes those those, uh, walls are leaning after uh, 60, 70 mile per hour blizzards and windstorms and that's what David feels like. He feels like he's been battered and he feels like he's leaning. He doesn't feel whole. He doesn't feel strong. That's why he, he runs to the Lord we think also of a tottering, a tottering fence. We think of an old stone wall if you're driving sometimes places in the country and you see some old uh, walls made of stone and you notice a couple of them had been, had been knocked down and that, that fence doesn't look very stable anymore. Uh, David is not trusting in himself. He recognizes that his only hope is to run to his God. You might remember that Absalom has turned Israel against David. If you look at the narrative in 2 Samuel 15, it talks about that Absalom would go out to the city gates and he'd listen 
to people's problems. They would come to him and he'd provide this wonderful counsel. And actually the, the Bible says that he stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. And then we see here in verse 4, David seems to be talking about his own son, how he blessed with his mouth, but inwardly he cursed. Absalom's heart was filled with hatred and spite against his father, even though sometimes syrupy words may have come out of his mouth. This certainly is the picture of hypocrisy. This is what David was up against in his own, his own family. So this first W we see in Psalm 62, the why of trust, there really is nowhere else to go. Have you ever felt that way? There is nowhere else to go. I guess it's time to go to God. And, and we know it would have been better to go to God in the first place. But sometimes we, we, uh, we forget, don't we? Or sometimes we're leaning on other, other things to uh, even to be our substitute God or an idol that we are trusting in. And idols cannot deliver. They're absolutely helpless to do anything. The Bible talks about idols of ha having mouths that cannot speak and eyes that cannot see and they can't move. They can't do anything to come to our aid. David has recognized from experience that only God, only God. That gets to a second W is the whom of trust. The whom of trust. Well, as Americans, we are reminded even on our own currency, it says, and God we trust. And yet we can't look around uh, at our uh, society and see a whole lot of trusting in God. Just because the currency says it doesn't mean it means much to, to most people. It's easy to give a Sunday school answer. Uh, in God we trust. Uh, David really is running to God. Even the psalm starts out, for God alone. Notice uh, sometimes these, these small words, we don't take a lot of notice, but, but notice the power of the word alone. For God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 5, for God alone. Are you able to say, I, I trust in God alone. I'm not putting my trust in anything else or anyone else. It's God alone. On July the 28th, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel William Smith and two passengers were making a routine flight from Montana to Newark, New Jersey. Routine, that is, until they approached the skies of, over New York City. As Smith piloted his B-25 toward Manhattan, he picked up a warning from the Newark flight control. There's heavy fog and low clouds ahead. And so the Newark Tower advised Smith to alter his course and land at New York's LaGuardia Airport. But Smith was a decorated veteran, two years of combat service. He wasn't concerned. He insisted on flying those few remaining miles over New York City and landing in Newark as he had planned. As he pushed southwest, the control tower warned him that the top of the Empire State Building might not be visible in the dense fog. Again, Smith blithely thanked the tower and pressed on. Moments later, the bomber dipped below the clouds and Smith and his passengers found themselves amid unusual and dangerous scenery, Manhattan's towering skyscrapers. Smith made a desperate attempt to pull the plane up to safety, but he'd already lowered the landing gear, 
which restricted the plane's ability to, to climb quickly. Hopelessly hemmed in, the plane slammed into the 78th and 79th floor of the Empire State Building, exploding on impact. Smith, his passengers, and 11 people in the building were killed. 25 others were injured in the explosion. So if Smith had obeyed the tower's warnings and altered his course, the tragedy certainly would have been avoided. Why did he ignore the warnings? The key factor was misplaced trust. He had to make a choice, trust the tower and change course, or trust his instincts and press on. Ultimately, he placed more trust in his own abilities and experience than in the warning system that was designed to guide and protect him. David, there were times, as you read through the whole narrative of David's life, there were times he trusted in himself. Plenty of times that we see sin in David's life. It wasn't just about Bathsheba and her husband. Many times David proves that he's a sinful human being. But here, as he, as he pens this psalm, we, sees that he, we see that he's not trusting in himself. Some have named this psalm the alone, or the only, the only psalm. It, the word only occurs six times. Only means alone in kind or class. Standing alone by reason of superiority or excellence without anyone or anything else. Alone. Verse 6, he only is my rock. Who do you place your trust in? What do you place your trust in when you face trials? Where do you go? Do you run to the Lord or you turn, do you turn somewhere else or to someone else? I mean, even the very first of the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before you, uh, before, before me. He teaches us that God alone will not allow us to trust in other gods, but him alone. What about the what of trust? The what of trust. I mentioned about the, the metaphors, the images that we have here in this psalm. David, first of all, in verse 2 says, he, he only is my rock. Jump down at verse 6. He only is my rock. Verse 7. My mighty rock. We have rocks all around us here in the Midwest, if you've, but if you've ever traveled to Israel. How many of you have traveled to Israel? There are a lot of rocks in that nation. My wife and I had the opportunity to go there back in, right before COVID in 2019. Rocks everywhere. Someone has said when God finished his work of creation, he had so many rocks left over, he dumped them on the land of Israel. But all those scattered rocks are not the rocks that David had in mind. Rocks that could be moved, rocks that could be uh, chipped away, hit with a hammer. If you study the life of David, you notice a number of times he's hiding from his enemies in the midst of mighty rock fortresses and decades. Rocks that are immovable, sheer walls of granite. Think about the Rocky Mountains. If you have ever been to California, if you've ever been to Yosemite, there's a massive rock called El Capitan, 3,000 feet above the, above the ground and thought to be 
as many as 5,000 feet under the ground. That is a rock. And that is the rock, kind of rock, that David had in mind. Not the rocks that we might kick on the street or pick up and throw into the lake. This massive, sheer granite wall that cannot be moved. That's what God has in mind of God being, what David has in mind, that God is my rock. Immovable. Steady. He will always be there. Another image that we see then, he talks about fortress or stronghold, depending on which what version you're using. God is my stronghold, a fort, a fortress. When I was a kid, I loved to get a couple other guys and we'd play army and usually it would end up with one or both groups uh, building a fort. And of course, if it was winter and there was snow, we'd build a snow fort. And then the other team would try to knock it down with snowballs or rocks or whatever we used. We were hiding inside that fortress. And David thinks about God as being this fortress that he would hide from his enemies in. Spurgeon says, the believer is not only abiding in God as a rock, but dwelling in him, dwelling in him as a warrior in a lordly castle. So David recognizes that God is a rock, that God is a stronghold. And then he uses the word refuge. Let's read the next handful of verses from verses 5 to 7. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Uh, Connor, thank you for that song uh, that, that we just uh, sang just a little bit ago that God doesn't always answer right away. And David recognized that too. He recognizes that sometimes part of the prayer life is learning how to wait, how to wait on God's deliverance. Because it certainly can come in different ways, can it? And sometimes he allows really bad things to happen to bring about good. And we know Romans 8.28 tells us that God is able to bring uh, even some of the worst of things to bring good out of them. And that his purposes will be Fulfilled, For God alone, verse 5, O oh, my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Now there's a third image, a refuge. He's a refuge. If you are a reader of the Old Testament, you know that, that perhaps this word has to do with the cities that were called cities of refuge that God told the Jews to set up during those Old Testament days. There were six cities designated by the command of God to be a city of refuge. If someone accidentally killed someone, which would mean that oftentimes that person's relatives would want to take revenge upon this accidental murderer, uh, a person could flee to this city of refuge and be protected. He'd be safe from the relatives. They were not allowed to, to enter the city and to avenge the death of their loved one. And so David calls God my refuge, the one that I'm going to hide in and find protection from. Now, as we talk about hiding in God, it brings up an interesting problem 
We know that God is holy and we know that we are not. So how can an unholy person, a person who is a sinner, find refuge in a God who is holy? Well, we know that David was a person who had put his faith in God alone. He had turned from his sin. He had been saved by placing faith in the promises of God and the person of God. And so we understand that in the Old Testament, people who are believers uh, are, are called the upright or the righteous. And the New Testament teaches us that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior, that his righteousness actually uh, is attributed to us as our sinfulness is, has been transferred to him as he died on the cross. So uh, that we run to, to the, into and, and are able to find refuge in God in his perfect holiness as we are covered with the righteousness of Christ, that his blood actually has washed away our sins. I want to quote from John Piper in one of his books, The Pleasures of God. He says, suppose you were exploring an unknown glacier in Greenland, just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles and miles of jagged ice, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong, the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. At first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found a refuge and you gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And so it is with God. God's greatness is greater than the entire universe and his power is behind the unendurable cold of Arctic storms. Yet he cups his hand around us and says, take refuge in me, take refuge in my love. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. And in that place of refuge, we say, this is amazing. This is incredible power. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the power of God, protected by God himself. So when we place our faith in Jesus, we actually are placed in him. We are in Christ. God views us as his sons and daughters. He loves us with the same love he loved, loves his only son with. I love that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And then we come to the win of trust, the win of trust. Let's read the rest of the psalm beginning here in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 
those of low estate, now he's talking about two different groups of mankind, those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, and they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render a man according to his work. The win of trust, well, our trust in God begins the moment that we turn to Jesus, that we put our trust in him. We put our faith in him. We begin trusting him day by day. And the trust doesn't just last one day, it's to last throughout all eternity. Throughout this life on earth, we continue trusting him. David puts it like this in verse 8, trust in him at all times. Not just in the midst of trials and troubles, at all times. When things are going well and things are going poorly. In our youth and our old age. During peaceful and prosperous times, but also in times of great need. During periods of peace, in the midst of trials. Day and night, depressed and joyful. All times. All times. We talked about the word alone or only. And this word all, you know what the Hebrew meaning for all is? It means, it means all. It means all. Trust in him at all times. Well, David isn't necessarily, he's not arrived yet. Because though verse 1 starts out with a testimony, for God alone my soul waits. Look at what, how he puts the, the words in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. So he's preaching to himself. He's talking to himself. He's not there yet. He's demanding. He's commanding his soul. For God alone, wait. Wait in silence. It's so hard to be still, isn't it? Some of you who like control, have you learned that everything's not under your control yet? Because if you haven't learned, you will. The Lord will orchestrate things in your life that remind you, you are not in control. You're not even in control of your own health, are you? And we begin realizing that as we encounter uh, some of the frailties of our bodies, as they, especially as they age. But that wouldn't be me, would it? Uh, yes, David is preaching to himself. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, don't we? We need to speak to our soul. Soul, trust in God, for he is your hope. Trust in him at all times. I, I love this word, pour out. Pour out your heart. It, it's the word normally used of, of pouring out water, a drink offering, or pouring out blood during a sacrifice. It, it refers to the pouring out of the contents of a vessel. David is reminding us to hold nothing back as we come to God. Open yourselves up. Pour, yourself, pour out your heart to the Lord. He is a good listener. There's no listener like the Lord. My wife's a good listener, but she's not a good, as good a listener as the Lord. He will always listen. He's never too busy for us. Don't you just hate the technology of trying to get somebody on the phone, a business? 
when it's all these machines and recordings and you wait and then you hit this button or that button. It's, it's just, it's so, I, I, I made a call uh, a few months ago and there was a live person and I commended them. I said, it's a live person. She probably thought I was crazy. I was just like celebrating. I didn't have to wait on the phone for 10 or 15 minutes. God is always listening. Are we listening to him? That's the question. Are we listening to him as we come to his word? David invites us, pour out your heart before him. Spurgeon says, you to whom his love is revealed, reveal yourselves to him. His heart is set upon you. Lay bare your hearts to him. Turn the vessel of your soul upside down in his secret presence and let your inmost thoughts and desires and sorrows and sins be poured out like water. Hide nothing from him, for you can hide nothing. To the Lord, unburden your soul. This is the Lord who says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. This is the heart of God. Not only listens, but he can do something with the burdens that we place upon him. David says, man does, does nothing, is, is not worth putting our trust in. He says, the wealthy and the poor, they both are... They both are lighter than a breath. In other words, they, they come and they go. We're, we're transient beings. And David talks about might. And he says, don't be putting trust in power or in riches. No, these things are not worthy. And then he lists three attributes that speak to us of what the Lord is like. He first of all says power. Power belongs to God. We think of the might of God. As strong as these enemies were that were chasing David down, uh, David recognizes, wait a minute, God is all powerful. Those men are like grasshoppers in his sight. And then he speaks of his love, steadfast love. The word, Hebrew word is hesed. The hesed, the covenant love of God that's, which cannot be and taken away, it cannot be broken. It is his covenant love. He is a faithful God who will continue to love. And then he speaks of God's justice. You will render to a man according to his work. I'm sure in the back of his mind, David recognizes if Absalom does not repent, God will judge him. And it wasn't perhaps that long afterwards that Absalom was found hanging in a tree by his hair and then was it Joab came along and, and finished, finished uh, the deed and, and uh, stabbed him with his sword and killed him. God's justice. When my children were small, I loved to, we played a number of games, but one of the things was I'd, when there were two or three, I'd put them on, the count, on a counter and, and have them jump into my arms. And uh, though I'm not very tall and very strong, I, to a three-year-old, it was easy to catch them. But they had to kind of think, is, is he strong enough to catch me? And they would jump, and I would catch them. And maybe they thought, uh, does he love me enough to not let me fall to the ground? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, these, are, these are great attributes that, for us to meditate on. God is mighty, and, and he has the power to do 
whatever we ask him to do that's within his will. Nothing is impossible for him. God is loving enough and he's not going to allow us to fall to the ground. I want to conclude my sermon by reading uh, a, a short parable called the cherry tree from a pastor who is with the Lord now named Walter Wangren. Uh, this is a wonderful story. I think you will enjoy it very much. When I was a boy, I told people that my father was stronger than anyone else in the world. Little children like to, like to imagine that and, and tell the neighborhood kids that, don't they? My dad's stronger than your dad. So I would go out in the front porch and I would roar to the neighborhood, my daddy's arms are as strong as trucks. He's the strongest man in the world. My mother came out and said, are you trying to start a fight with somebody? I said, no. Well, Wally, beware. When my mother went back into the house, I bellowed, my daddy's the strongest man in the world. In those days, a cherry tree grew in our backyard. This was my hiding place. Ten feet above the ground, a stout limb made a horizontal fork, a cradle on which I could lie face down, reading, thinking, being alone. Nobody bothered me here. Even my parents didn't know where I went to hide. Sometimes Daddy would come out and call, Wally, Wally, but he couldn't see me in the leaves. I felt very tricky. Then came the thunderstorm. It was usual for me to dream in my tree and therefore not to notice changes in the weather. So if the sky grew dark or gave any warning, I didn't even see it. One day, suddenly, a wind tore through my backyard and struck my cherry tree with such force it ripped the book out of my hands and nearly threw me off the limb. I locked my arms around the branches and hung on. My head hung down between them. I tried to wind my legs around the limb, but the whole tree was wallowing in the wind. Daddy! The sky grew absolutely black. Dust whirled higher than the house. I saw a lightning bolt drop from heaven, and then there was a perfect calm, and then the thunder crashed. Daddy! Daddy! The whole tree bowed down and rose again, and the wind blew my shirt up to my shoulders, and the rain hit like bullets, and I thought my arms were going to slip from the branches. Daddy! There he was. I saw his face peering out the back door. Lightning uh, lined up the sky. Out here, up here, Daddy, come get me. The branches swept up and down like huge waves on an ocean. And Daddy saw me. And right away, he came out into the wind and the weather. And I felt so relieved, I just took for granted that he'd climb right up the tree and get me. But that wasn't his plan at all. He came to a spot right below me, lifted up his arms and shouted, jump. And I said, what? Jump, I'll catch you. Jump. I had a crazy man for a father. He was standing six or seven miles beneath me, holding up two skinny arms and telling me to jump. If I jump, he'd miss and I'd hit the ground and die. I screamed, no. At least I could feel the bark of the branches against my body. No! I made up my mind. I'd stay right here till the storm was over. I closed my eyes and hung on. But the wind and the rain slapped that cherry tree, bent it back, 
and crapped my, cracked my limb at the trunk. I dropped a foot. My eyes flew open. And then the wood whined and splintered and sank, and so did I in bloody terror. No, I did not jump. I let go. I surrendered. I fell. In a fast, eternal moment, I despaired and plummeted. This, I thought, is what it's like to die. But my father caught me. And my father <laughs> squeezed me to himself. I wrapped my arms and legs around him and felt the scratch of his whiskers on my face and began to tremble and began to cry. He caught me. My daddy. He had strong arms indeed. Very strong arms. But it wasn't until I actually experienced the strength that I actually believed in it. And I myself did not choose so frightening an experience. The storm did. Horrible storm. Wonderful storm. It granted me what I had had all along, but I, what I had not trusted. A father with arms as strong as trucks. Hopefully by now you've recognized this parable is about God, trusting God. And it may be that a trial that you're facing or perhaps will face in coming days is meant by God to help you to actually experience his strong arms. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bow before you and we are in wonder and awe that your love that your power, that your justice, that your faithfulness, all of these attributes are reliable. They're always true. And those of us who've experienced you catching us as we have surrendered, as we have let go of control, Lord, our testimony is that you are faithful, that you are always there. And we worship you. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. Lord, what a joy it is knowing you and trusting you. In Jesus' name.